Connor Esiason, and you're listening to Breathe In, a cystic fibrosis podcast presented by the Boomer Esiason Foundation and GunnerEsiason.com. This podcast series has been made possible by Vertex, Novartis, Digital Credit Union, and Atlantic Health. The views expressed on Breathe In, a cystic fibrosis podcast are that of Gunnar Esiason, Tiffany Rich, and guests, and not necessarily those of the Boomer Esiason Foundation. Nothing in this podcast series should be considered medical advice. Such advice can only be given by a physician who's experienced with cystic fibrosis. The Boomer Esiason Foundation, Gunnar Esiason, Tiffany Rich, and guests cannot be held responsible for any damage which may result from using the information on this podcast without the permission of your medical doctor. You're listening to Breathe In, a cystic fibrosis podcast. All right, hey, it's Gunnar Siasen, uh, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Tiffany Rich. Tiffany, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I am well. Um, so we have another guest on the podcast this week, another very special guest, a very special club of guests, Molly Pam. She's 30 years old with cystic fibrosis, and she's coming to us from Israel. So wow. Molly, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. Well, glad the time zones all worked out. Yeah, you're telling me. I yeah, the, the, I feel like in coordinating this podcast, I was like the telephone operator between Tiffany on the West Coast and you in Israel, and right. doing a little mental math. Um, but I'm glad it got to work out. So, um, Molly, before we jump in here, I'll, I'll introduce you as uh, you're a board member of the uh, CF Sexual Reproductive Health Collaborative. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit. We'll also talk about uh, living abroad in Israel. And I know you studied abroad in college, so. Um, a lot of interesting topics here to talk about, things that we haven't really discussed on the podcast, um, but we'll kind of get right into it. So, But first, uh, Molly, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and uh, you know what your life with cystic fibrosis has been like so far. Yeah. So, um, as you said, I'm 30 years old. I'm currently in Israel. I've actually spent the last eight years of my life living in Manhattan, New York City, kind of right in the middle of everything. Uh, but I'm originally from San Francisco, so I'm kind of in Israel right now with a little break between moving from New York to SF. Uh huh. So, but why Israel? You know, I, I think a, we'll get into that. But also, it sounds like you've moved around in a lot of different places. You know, it's and it's kind of something that gives uh, a lot of people with cystic fibrosis some anxiety and stress. It certainly gives me some stress. You know, yeah. being uh, being so far away from the nest or from you know the doctors that I love and trust. But you know, it sounds like you've been able to move around. Let's let's just talk about the, the giant elephant in the room. Why Israel? What's it like to live halfway across the world? Uh, so I've only been here for two weeks. I've really just got here. And I'm here for three months total, and my husband's working on a work project. So when he uh, uh, kind of went to his company and said, hey, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to move to San Francisco. They said, how would you want to go move to Israel, work with our team there for three months before you leave the company? Have so you been I, there before? I have never been to Israel. Wow. I'm so Jewish, but never been. I don't speak Hebrew. <laughs> fun uh, learning experience so what is it what is it what is it like been like you know there not only as a person with cf but also uh as an american in a different country for for a handful of weeks um and you know what 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 is the, i guess what is the uh the adjustment period been like so the first week was tough um when i got here my lungs were not in great shape and i live in a city called haifa that makes san francisco look pretty flat overall <laughs> wow <laughs> That's that's crazy. It's hard <laughs> yeah. to do. It's good training for when I move back to SF. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the first couple of days, I, I was uh, not moving around a lot, did not recognize any Hebrew letters, uh, but I found this Facebook group of Haifa young English speakers. And <laughs> it, there you go. And there's so much useful advice, and I found a Hebrew tutor so that I can meeting with her twice a week to learn the language so like oh. i can just 
to read the letters now and say hi i'm molly <laughs> I don't, I don't hi, speak you. can you speak english <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but in general so many people here speak english and israel really tries to get jews from everywhere to move so there's a lot of americans who have done what's called making aliyah which is moving back to the holy land um, so there's a lot of services for English speakers here. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, what is what is the CF Caribbean like? You know, I obviously, you know, CF care between one country and another country is is never going to be the same even for neighbors in Europe. It's just not the same and the US and Canada mm-hmm. is so very different. So, what is, you know, did you what was your first move to get in touch with the Cystic Fibrosis Clinic there in Israel? Was it uh something that you kind of were okay, I'll think about it when the time comes. Did you plan ahead for it? You know, what what was that process like? Yeah, so in, in around January, I reached out to a CF clinic here. Uh, my doctor transferred all of my records to them. And the biggest difference actually is not in the CF clinics, it's in home care. So in Israel, if you, like the government has, it's socialized medicine. So everyone has government provided insurance. I think there's a few different companies. So it's like there is some choice involved. But the big thing is everyone with CF gets a PT coming to their home five days a week to do physical therapy with them and airway clearance. And that can be percussion, it can be autogenic drainage. Um, they're really big fans of these things that I never heard of before called BiPAPs and cough assist devices, which basically like force air into your lungs <laughs> and get you to cough them out. So it's basically really intense airway clearance. Uh, they have a lot of focus on home care, a lot of focus on prevention. I have heard the hospitals are not quite as great. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually not been to clinic yet. Um, I have travel health insurance, but it only covers exacerbations, hospitalizations, IVs, that type of thing. And to get an appointment out of pocket is $1,200 US dollars. Oh, wow. like I could literally fly back to New York for a PFT if I just want like a well visit. <laughs> gotcha. So that, that's actually uh, so the, the emphasis on airway clearance is. It's different. I feel like here in the U.S., it's kind of upon the patient to, to do it. You know, you got to strap the vest on or you go out and exercise. A lot of people do that. You know, they, they forego the vest or they forego PEP devices in lieu of exercise. Or they also, uh, you know, try to master autogenic range on, the, on their own, which is something I will say that I'm actually trying to work on. But I don't love the feeling of, like, mucus pouring out of my mouth. So uh, I guess I'm a little hesitant to get into the autogenic drainage. Um, so that sounds like it's, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head there. It sounds like that's the biggest uh, difference there is that the airway clearance, from what it sounds like in Israel, is very active, uh, active part of the routine. Whereas here in the U.S., it's very much upon the patient to decide how to do it. So do they not have the vest there? Nope. No. I mean, okay. they, do, they, they told me they're like, the vest is... Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think airway clearance is one of those things that is like it's whatever works for you, right? It's right. it's it's exactly. you know, you should know how airway clearance is best in your specific case with cystic fibrosis. You know, if you're a person that coughs up a lot of mucus or a person who is very productive, then the vest is probably the thing that's going to work for you. If you're someone who has a hard time bringing up mucus, then it's going to be all about the breathing exercises and actually figuring out a way to force the, the you know, the, the mucus up. You know, I feel like yeah. <clears throat> when I'm exercising, for example, I get a very different kind of airway clearance than I do when I strap the vest on or even when I'm doing hypertonic saline. You know, hypertonic saline is one of those things that, you know, it works for a very, very short period of time because as soon as you stop doing hypertonic saline, the, the mechanism of CF kind of just takes over the lungs and it dehydrates the airways again. So, you know, it's kind of like you have to, you know, pick your poison and choose your battles there. Um, um, 
I do have another question about living in Israel, though. Interesting thing about hypertonic saline that yeah. my PT was telling me is I was always taught, you know, you do your meds sitting up, you like good posture. Uh-huh. And yeah. he would say, like, first of all, they were, every PT I've seen has just felt my lungs. Like their hands are feeling, oh. they're saying, you can tell if you have a pneumothorax because they're feeling your expansion. Like they just know your muscles. Uh-huh. And I was like, I don't think I've ever had a PT in the U.S. do that to me. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Hands feel how I breathe. Uh, but the interesting thing they told me is they were like, okay, so your left side is not expanding as much as your right. What you should do is you should do your hypertonic saline laying down on your left side, propped up a tiny bit. Because when you're laying down, you're kind of isolating the left lung uh-huh. so that the saline is going to be directed there for oh, more interesting. therapy. Oh, I've never heard that. Yeah, I've never heard that either. I know. It, and it made so much sense. because like, That does make sense. Like, the nebulizer is going to go where the most open root is yeah really trying to work on the closed root you have to close off that open root so laying on your side is the best way to do it it's interesting you said i mean i've heard about other airway clearance devices where you do like you know different postures or positions and the the one thing that i've that i've tried in that regard is the frequencer where you know you kind of lay on one side because it's a targeted therapy you know it's not the kind of thing that's like going to go all over and you're really trying to work those things out and then of course back in the old days when my parents used to do pt on me you know i would like be hanging upside down and they'd be like slamming on that you know who knows if that if that that may that may have been worse for my health well i remember <laughs> in the hospital they would move the beds yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh-huh. they would do all the percussion they just move them everywhere i'm like i'm gonna fall <laughs> next thing you know you next thing you know you're like hanging upside down trying to suck on the hypertonic yeah yeah who knows um all right, so let's talk a little bit about the uh, CF Sexual and Reproductive Health Collaborative, of which you're a part. Um, it's kind of a new initiative, or relatively new initiative, um, and it's something that you know may, not everyone may know, not know about, or what, what is the mission of uh, the collaborative, and what is your position within it? Yeah, so um, I am on what's called the Governance Board of CFRESH. Uh, CFRESH is the acronym we use. That's a little easier to say. There's <laughs> a lot of words in the acronym, by the way. Reproductive Sexual Health Collaborative. <laughs> um, and so CFRESH was started in 2016 with a partnership, or really a friendship, between a patient, Sandy Sufian, who's also a disability health researcher, and um, Emily, Dr. Emily Godfrey at the University of Washington, who's a family planning specialist. And they were really good friends, and Sandy was always asking Emily about different sexually reproductive health issues that she had that her CF team didn't know about, and Emily was like, I don't know, that's a great great question, and they kind of looked into it, and there really wasn't anything about it available. Um, so they started CFRESH. Um, I came to them actually pretty soon after, I think, they started in 2016. Um, and basically what we do is we, we have three different groups. We have a governance board that's uh, half patients and half um, researchers, so we've got family planning, we've got CF researchers, we have CF nurses, we have genetic counselors, we have uh, social workers, kind of the whole spectrum of clinicians, both in CF and in family planning and gynecology. And then we also have patients. Um, so that's kind of our governance board. We have a research advisory panel, and this is just the researchers. Um, so that's everything, you know, from our genetic counselors to nurse practitioners, you get the picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the part that we're the proudest of is our patient task force. So we have monthly meetings of our patient task force, and those meetings are focused on 
single topics in within sexual reproductive health to kind of figure out what do women want to know about the topic. So we just had one last Saturday on vaginitis and bacterial vaginal infections. So we actually talked about everything from yeast infections to bacterial infections, yeah. kind of anything along those lines to see really what do women want to know about this topic. Yeah. And then what the governance board does is they take kind of the priorities that the Nation Task Force votes on, brings them back to our research advisory panel, and the research advisory panel goes out, gets grants, does the research um, in work groups. Interesting. So, I mean, it sounds like it's very it's an all-encompassing kind of thing. And yes. it's, it's certainly badly needed. I mean, this is one of those things where as people with cystic fibrosis are getting older, we're discovering different problems or different issues that people have to come across. And yeah. it's it's like, it, I feel like we're always in this world of like catching up to problems that people are having um, rather than trying to get out in front of them. And it sounds like this is doing a little bit of both. It's catching up to some of the issues that people are having, but also educating the next generation of patients who are coming of age. And, you know, the one thing that I hear from a lot of people who are either going through family building or, or a lot of those, uh, you know, or that, I guess that specific part of life is that there just are not enough resources out there for them to, you know, adequately direct decision-making and, you know, to give, uh, you know, anecdotal evidence. Because I think what a lot of people really want, especially when they're making some of these like giant life decisions is they want to have have some evidence or they want to have or they want to hear stories about some successes and failures that people have had. I know we've had a number of people on the podcast who have either fathered children or been the mothers to children and or or have even, you know, had trouble in in that in in that you know trying to create a family. And they're just aren't enough of those kinds of stories out there for people to get. And those people always say is, you know, when, when doing this, it felt like we were walking through a dark tunnel and we had no direction whatsoever. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So actually, that's exactly how I came to see Fresh. So I got married in September of 2016. And in my search for, you know, trying to decide with my husband, do we want to have kids? Do we not? Am I healthy enough? And kind of going through all of our options, that's when I found Sea Fresh. So um, we actually, one of our big projects right now with Sea Fresh is creating an online decision aid guide um, for whether or not to have a family. Um, so that's run Dr. Uh, Tracy Kazmierski at Pittsburgh um, is the PI on that project. And so hopefully by next year, we're going to have a working website that anyone can go to where they can, it'll kind of talk them through the decision of whether or not to have kids. Mm -hmm. Like, my husband and I were really, we were torn. Like I was, had been really stable for a long time. I'd been on Kaleidico at that point. But there's just so many things to consider. It's like the finances, just the whole like, does he even want to be a single dad? Like, God forbid I die and the kid's two years old. Does he want to be a single father the rest of his life? Right. Like, it's not, I don't think it's my choice to tell him that he should do that. Um, so mm -hmm. I think it's really a group decision between you, your spouse, your doctor, that there's no resources there. Doctors aren't trained in this decision. And you can kind of crowdsource on Facebook. But people really are in this kind of black hole with so many things to consider. Yeah, you know, I think it's... Um Tiffany, you look like you want to like you're bursting at the seams. You want to say something, so I'll I'll let it go to hear you here in a second. But it, you know, it also feels like um, it, it is one of those things where it's just so new, right? The, the idea that people with CF are now living well into adulthood and are doing well, and the fact that you're able to move across the the world and live in Israel, you know, all these things are finally happening for the first time. Um, it's almost like where. Why weren't we prepared for this kind of thing? You know, that's that's kind of like the frustration that I think a lot of us have. 
Right. And I, the other thing that we've really talked a lot about in Seafresh and that I just I keep hearing over and over in the community, but it's not kind of addressed broadly, is the gender gap. So men with CF live on average two to three years longer than women, but in the general population, it's flipped and women live five years longer. So really, there's almost like an eight to 10 year gap between men and women, and we just don't know why. Mm-hmm. And there's a little there's a little bit of preliminary research maybe thinking about hormones and estrogen, but that's a huge area of research that we need to really start talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, why are women dying so much younger than men? Yeah. Well, I've heard that about the estrogen, that it, when girls go into puberty, it starts to decline the lung function more. I've heard about that kind of study, which is very interesting to me, I guess because it's such a strong uh, hormone that it just wants to attack the lungs, I guess, with the cystic fibrosis. There's been a tiny bit of preliminary research showing that estrogen potentially makes pseudomonas stronger, so it makes mm-hmm. it more likely to become mucoid and more resistant. Okay. And that, that could be why, but there's mm-hmm. just so there have only been like two preliminary studies done. There's right. nothing definitive it almost it almost it it almost feels like they've known about this for a long time too you know last year a year or two ago i read alex um frank deford's book about alex and even Mm -hmm. in in his book written you know when was it in the 70s or 80s you know they specifically said you know we know that uh, you know the men with cystic fibrosis are living a little longer back then you know obviously you know the median survival rate was was very very different but even back then they knew the difference existed and it's it still feels like it's just been a something that's like brushed under the table i guess you know that may not be the right word but it's it's the kind of thing that you know if you've known about this problem for so long why why don't we know more about it you know that that's kind of like the stress that i think i have with this specific topic because you raise a good point that the the gap between survival of men and women is a very real thing that is happening Yeah, and I think part of the issue is, I, for so long, I think CF doctors thought of themselves as lung doctors and not really whole body. Or like CF mm-hmm. was a lung disease and a pancreas right. disease. So they didn't really think, maybe could this be affecting your endocrine system? Could it be affecting vaginal mucus? Mm-hmm. Could it be affecting mm-hmm. fertility in women? We've known fertility in men is infected forever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because there's no DAS deference, but no one's ever studied for women. And you've got all these reports of women really struggling to conceive naturally, even struggling with IVF and IUI, and no one's researched it yet. It's inter- you know, it's, it's interesting you talk about the specialty of the cystic fibrosis doctor. You know, I, I, I go around the country and I visit a lot of these clinics for a number of different reasons, and one of the big differences that I find between some clinics is that some doctors, you know, will, will talk to me about how the fact that, you know, they have patients who come to them about other issues that may or may not be related to cystic fibrosis, and they're very quick to refer those patients out to other specialties. You know, some doctors are very up in front about that. They're very they're very good with it. And then others will kind of just assume the role of the, I guess, the general health practitioner kind of thing. And it's, it's a very weird, I guess, I don't want to call it a divide, but a very weird trend that is existing in the larger scope of the cystic fibrosis clinics in that, you know, some doctors are willing to, you know, say, yeah, I'm a pulmonologist. That's what I do. And others are like, you know, I'm happy to help you with a lot of these different issues that you're having. And I think it's one this is something where the patients need to be able to effectively communicate with their care providers and not feel worried about the answer that may come back. You know, if you're dealing with something that is not, quote unquote, a classic CF symptom or something that is, you know, 
going to come back to your respiratory health, you know, should you be talking about seeing a different specialist? Should you be talking about going to a different department within the hospital and working with, you know, I, I know, for example, that you know, at, at, at my clinic, you know, we, I have been referred to a number of different specialists based upon the symptoms that I'm feeling. You know, I have a G-tube and I work with, a, with gastroenterology. You know, my pulmonologist is just going to sit here and talk to me about the health of my stoma. You know, that's just not what she does. Yeah. And, you know, I appreciate that. And and I think it's I think it's one of those things where patients need to have this information in their hands to be able to effectively use it. I'm not talking you need to self-treat yourself. That's not what we're saying. No. We're saying you need to go out there and, and look at the information that, you know, your doctors would otherwise use. Try to understand it yourself and then talk to your doctor and communicate about those things. Right. Yeah. And one thing we've talked a lot about in our PTF, PTF meeting, patient task force meetings that just it seems to come up over and over again is people want a gynecologist or a referral to someone who has experience with CF. Right. Because right now, gynecologists, you go to the gynecologist, something like thick cervical music, and they're going to say, go talk to your CF doctor. I don't know anything about this. Uh-huh. Can, you a, can you create a system where the doctor just says, okay, I'm going to refer all of my patients to this one gynecologist, like effectively... Yeah. Than the CF gynecologist. It's the same thing. It's the same thing on the mental health side. You know, we when we, right. we when you talk to some of these patients and families, you know, they're talking about how they want to, you know, they want to get their kid out to a therapist or a psychologist or something like that. But but they get they find these people that have no idea what cystic fibrosis is, and they find that for the you know they, they may set up you know six seven eight appointments for the first half of their billable appointments. They're giving a biology lesson about cystic fibrosis. It's not like they're actually you know trying to treat some of their mental health system, symptoms. They're just being overshadowed by the fact that they're trying to train this new person mm-hmm. in cystic fibrosis, which is a very hard thing to do. It's not like something that can be captured in three or four days. Yeah. And it's sort of like other chronic diseases, but it's very, like it has its own issues that I feel like psychologists do need to be trained in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny you said that about the gynecologist. Mine actually did work with cystic fibrosis patients. He did a uh, bunch of stuff with them. And yeah. so what, what was it? I mean, how is that? How I mean, how is that? I guess how is that experience enhanced the overall care you think you're getting? I think because he actually knew exactly what I was going through and he could tell me if I had any symptoms, I could tell him, hey, this is what's going on. Oh, that's because of this, this and this from cystic fibrosis or, you know, and he kind of understood like. I told him I had a double lung transplant. He's like, oh, okay, I know exactly what went on. You had this, this, you know. It was just more informative, I think, and more of my questions were answered in that kind of setting of him understanding, oh, I know what you're what you're dealing with. That is so great that you had that. I think that yeah. is a unique experience. Yeah, for sure. It, it, it probably is. I mean, you know, I had a similar I, – I, for – I. Let's put it this way. I've had a lot of issues with either tendon or ligament problems, probably because I've been on you know antibiotics for 25 years of my life. So, um, you know, and, and having those issues, you know, it, it has created this weird problem where it's like, okay, if I'm having these antibiotic issues, you know, I'm, and I'm having these, you know, orthopedic problems, you know, who, where is the meeting of the minds going to happen, 
right? right? You know, obviously, my doctor is the one that's prescribing antibiotics. She's the one prescribing, you know, IV medications, of course, consulting with infectious disease. But she's not going to be the one that's saying, okay, this is why your foot hurts, you know, going to the, you know, the, the, the podiatrist or the orthopedic, you know, and talking about your know, different injuries that are happening and ways to prevent them at the result of antibiotics. You know, then it's right. now upon me, the patient, to be like the operator between the middle, right? I have to be the one that can effectively communicate what my podiatrist or orthopedic is saying back to my doctor and then vice versa, bring the, the information from my doctor back into the orthopedic world. So, you know, I think right. this is a thing that isn't, you know, uh, uh, I, I guess, specific to, you know, reproductive health. It's, it's also across the entire realm of, of care that people with cystic fibrosis are getting. And it's one of those things where, like, I feel like it's – there's got to be a better way to do it, right? There's got to be a better way to have information sharing between specialists, right? And, you know, there, there's – I mean, sure, there's people are working in different ways, but, you know, it, it – it, Yes, the patient should be the one that has the ability and the information to, you know, I guess, direct the conversation, but it shouldn't be upon us to be the ones who have to teach these lessons or, you know, create the connection between the specialists. Well, it gives us more work to do that. It's more stress on us that we don't need. It's unnecessary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, basically, it just, it kind of, I feel like, in my opinion, it kind of just like, I guess it hinders my trust in the system, right? You You want to believe that everyone has your best interest in mind and I think obviously people do you know why else would they be a doctor but you know they it's important that you are able to I guess diagnose and understand the misgivings of the system at hand and you can't you know operate at the whim of the entire healthcare system you have to play an effective role in it just like our care providers are but I want to bring this back to the uh, to the the collaborative here you know what are some of the, the, the big projects you have coming out obviously you spoke about the family planning the family planning guide but you know what are some other things that uh, the collaborative is working on or Seafresh is working on um, so we also have a big grant from Bacori which is the patient-centered outcomes Institute mm-hmm. um, to make a um, a uh, basically a guide or training session training so that other people with CF and other groups that can't meet in person can engage in PCOR. So PCOR is where you're engaging patients as equal partners in research. They're involved in every step of the process from idea generation through grant through results on papers, presentations, whole way, and. There's most PCOR is done in person. So CFRASH was novel in that we meet entirely online. We meet by Zoom, um, Zoom conferencing. And so as we were kind of meeting our first few years, we were like, wait a minute, there's no, we're kind of making it up as we go along. There's, there's other populations who could benefit from what we're doing in terms of how to collaborate with researchers. Um, so we have a two-year grant. We're about six months into it to create a guide and training both for researchers and patients so that everyone can come to the table together mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to do research. Uh, that's so a, that's a re- are as expert as the researchers. That's an, that's an important mm-hmm. piece of this. And, you know, one of the big criticisms of patient engagement, I actually read an article about this. I think you, you might find it interesting. I'll send it to you. It was from, uh, from a woman who was uh, – talking about uh, the landscape of patient engagement and how a lot of times either researchers or organizations will use patients as a way to check off the box just to get to their their research questions. Mm -hmm. The thing that's not happening is patients aren't the ones who are directing that research or the ones who are not, you know, actively pursuing the topics that they want discussed. And that's really been one of my big criticisms of Cystic Fibrosis Foundation over the past, you know, several years is that when we look at the registry and looking at questions coming off the registry, 
patients really have very little say in what what's discovered or what's talked about um, simply because of committee voting and stuff like that. It's almost like there's a hurdle that patients have to go through and they also have no access to the registry. I think that's something that's going to be improved. You know, I'm not I'm not saying that that's something that is just a horrendous horrendous thing. It's it's okay. It's going to be improved upon and it's one of those things that's going to have to improve because patients are living longer and we all want to have a more active role in this. So it sounds like Seafresh is kind of taking that idea and giving patients the tools and also the platform form required to be the experts you know it, it, it almost sounds like there's this notion out there that patients will um will, 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 will do these things out of the goodness of their heart right i mean that's that's certainly part of it but also at the same time right you know it's a, i consider disease expertise almost like a skill it's a skill that can be leveraged it's a skill that someone is going to greatly benefit off of right our our innate knowledge of cystic fibrosis and the cystic fibrosis experience is going to make somebody a lot of money down the line somewhere right so it's the kind of thing where patients should be involved and we do have the right and also the wherewithal to actively play that role so i mean hearing about that initiative is like an amazing thing that's like music to my ears yeah, and one of the big tenets of PCOR is that patients should be compensated the same as the mm-hmm. researchers um, because you are an expert. Mm-hmm. Um, so it shouldn't be like, oh, researchers get all the grant money and then patients donate their time. It's everyone is getting, everyone is getting paid. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's like that's like the, that is the best possible yeah. scenario or best case scenario for yeah. for anything that is involved in this. Um, now I. Also I one of our previous projects um, that's similar to what you're talking about with the registry is kind of right before, right as Seafresh was being formed, um, a similar group of researchers put together a contraceptive registry project. Mm-hmm. Because honestly, a lot of the questions we have about sexual reproductive health could be answered if you just start tracking them on the registry. Mm-hmm. Like things like fertility, um, how do you modulate her? They get a few questions. Like there's questions on have you been pregnant? in the last year, but there's nothing about contraceptive use. No one has studied which contraceptives you can or can't use, and there is misinformation everywhere of, oh, you can't take birth control if you're on antibiotics, but actually that's not true. It's only certain antibiotics, and it's just, there's research. But if you start tracking that in the registry, over time you'll see trends and you don't have to do the study separately. Yeah, that, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that is one of my biggest bones to pick with the registry is right. that it's... It, 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 yeah, it, it, it fails to adapt, right? It's not adapting to some of these some of our new needs. You know, there's... I with the HIPAA, like, they have to get a new HIPAA form from every single patient anytime they add a question, and they're scared to do that because anytime you do that, you lose people from the registry. But there is a time, I think, when you need to adapt. Yeah, so the, exactly. Our perceptive registry was basically a proof of concept to the CF Foundation of will this give you? It, I think it was ten questions, and it's will you get? Will this give you useful information? And will people be willing to fill that out? Like, mm-hmm. how much of a burden is it for the research team I mean, to do? I feel like whenever I, you know, I. They have adjusted a few things here and there, so I have, you know, you, I feel like I have consented to the registry a number of times throughout the past, you know, decade and a half or whatever. But um, I, I feel like whenever the, the topic comes up or the question comes up, I'm like, oh yeah, no, no big deal, just signing it away. It's, it is what it is. And you know, I think, um, yes, I, I, there are some frustrations that are real frustrations to adding these things. But if we're, in my opinion, like if we're in the business of improving lives and actually improving medical outcomes, then, you know, why aren't we going through the hurdles to make these things rea- like realities? You know, is it just because someone doesn't want to do some paperwork? Like, is that is that the is that the you know, that, it's kind of what it sounds like that, you know, it's just 
it doesn't people don't want to have to sit there and go through the tediousness of of you know reinventing the wheel here when in fact you know reinventing the wheel might actually be a, a hugely beneficial beneficial thing to patients and patient lives um so you know i want to change the direction of the conversation here uh you know we're, we're well into the podcast you actually studied abroad in college and i mean this is like we this is a, this is a huge huge uh, change of direction but I think this is an important conversation to talk about because there are a lot of people with CF who are going through college and who do want to do those kinds of things what was that experience like for you? So I actually studied abroad twice Wow Yeah, I like living abroad apparently Yes, apparently you do Apparently you do. So I lived in Berlin for six months uh, when I was a junior in college that was like my official study abroad experience so it was the three months was my spring quarter and then you had an option to extend for three months and get an internship. Uh-huh. And I actually worked in the German version of the Center for Disease Control. Uh, and it was uh-huh. right during swine flu. And ah, yes. during Obamacare debates. So it was actually a really interesting time to be like in their healthcare system. Uh-huh. And then the yeah. other time you studied abroad? So the other time I studied abroad was more of like just one of these really awesome programs. So I went to Stanford University for undergrad. Oh, and they have some pretty awesome programs. So this was called, it was called Holistic Biology. It was at half at their research station down in Monterey, California. And then for the other half, we lived on a boat in Baja, Mexico, doing field research for a month. So I was literally living on a boat in the middle of the ocean for five weeks. And my lungs felt better than they've ever felt in their life because of all this. because of the salt? Salt air every day. So how did... So when you were on a boat, how did it, how was it doing your treatments and stuff? Was uh, it difficult so we, or? It, it actually wasn't that difficult. So we were on two different vessels. The first one was a liveaboard boat. That one had electricity. They had, you know, a refrigerator downstairs. So that was fine. Um, for two of the weeks though, we were camping on a remote island and we oh. only had this <laughs> tiny little boat with like a generator. So they would plug my vest into the generator and... Twice a day, I'd have to like take the little boat to our slightly bigger boat to the generator to do my meds. <laughs> uh, I, wow! Uh, it was usually I did it like right after dinner because we uh-huh. always ate boat. Yeah, uh, and just basically, I think I, I I'm pretty sure I kept my meds on the boat so that I didn't have to bring them back and forth from mm-hmm. camping. I, so, I mean, okay, so you've had two widely different study abroad experiences, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I guess my question is. You know, for, for kids who are going through the college process now and they are either looking forward to studying abroad or they want to study abroad or they may have some hesitations about studying abroad, you know, what would you say to them? Go for it. Uh, it has been the most fun experiences of my life are the short periods that I've lived abroad, especially when you're in college. Like I was on my um, the student health plan. That health plan, because so many kids go abroad, it covered insurance abroad so like when i lived in germany i was going to the doctor regularly just all my normal checkups um but also a lot of insurance companies let you get up to three months of medications before you go so when i lived in berlin i got my three months before i went and then my parents visited halfway through in june and brought the other half of my meds (laughs) the resupply run (laughs) exactly (laughs) a well-timed vacation for them yes Um, and then for this one i'm only in israel for three months so i was able to get all three months. The full three months ahead. wide. And it, really, it's a lot of organization to like count through. Okay, how many, how many doses am I going to need? Make sure you have everything checked off a million times so that you don't accidentally forget. Um, 
you want to have all your prescriptions with you. But honestly, the internet makes things so easy. Like when I lived in Germany, it was 2009. It was pre-smartphones. Um, I spoke the language more than I speak. I don't speak any Hebrew. Um, but I, I, I could like get around in German. But I actually had a very funny experience my first day in Germany. I was trying to buy rubbing alcohol for sterilizing my nebulizers mm-hmm. over there. And I bought the wrong thing. And I luckily had only put one. I don't even know what I bought to this day. But I put one nebulizer oh, yeah. in it. And I used the e-flow. Well, this part of the e-flow um, grew five times its normal size. In oh. One- Oh man, that is hilarious! The little yeah, part. Really funny and terrifying. And I threw that. It was like, thank God, I only did it with one instead of all of my nebs. Because oh, I was like, I don't know what this substance is, but it no. is not alcohol. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> but it's I, even interesting because I use a baby bottle sterilizer at home in the U.S. Yeah. for sterilizing. Mm-hmm. And even here in Israel, I really, I'm still for figuring out a med routine. Like I brought a little bit of control free. But the, there's so much calcium deposits in the water, you can't boil mm. nebs unless you get distilled water. And I went to try to get uh, distilled water. They sell it in half liter bottles. I'm like, I'm gonna need like five of these a week. Yeah. Oh yeah. Water. Totally. Yeah. I. It's it's interesting to hear about how people. I guess a few different things. How people. Uh, not everyone knows that you can get three three month supplies of medications. Like that's that's like a critical thing when you're gonna be moving or living somewhere else that's what i did in college you know i i I went i went to bc so i was away from home and you know i extended my i guess my prescription lengths just so that i wouldn't have to get a resupply every month you know and it just it just made my life a little easier that way you know you just kind of yeah you create a little calendar or whatever um i think i think now i'm currently on the one month cycle just because you know my pharmacy is just down the street or you know the the mail pharmacy is just it's not it's not a big deal but um yeah the the three month thing is, is really good advice that's that's something that not everyone either knows about or totally understands that you can do. I mean, there, you may have some hurdles or some headaches in, I guess, convincing yeah, the insurance company that it, it can. But, like, yeah. some medication <laughs> insurance company was like, we're not giving you three months. What are you, crazy? Yeah. And I was like, please. You basically have to, like, take it all the way up. And I think I have five meds where I had to, you know, have hours upon hours of conversations. Yeah. The yeah. Pharmacy and the insurance company and the doctor. And- it's, yeah, it's definitely, it, it's definitely a pain in the ass for lack of a better term um the other the other interesting thing I, I thought you talked about is uh you know it's something we had uh we had another uh guest on here katie who talked about living abroad as well but going to the actual pharmacy and trying to like figure out the things that you need that aren't quite yeah. specific cf medications but like rubbing alcohol, right. alcohol for example or like you know things that you right. use yeah, exactly. Things that you use that aren't necessarily considered, you know, the, the cystic fibrosis norm, but things that you do to supplement your cystic fibrosis routine. So th- that's a that's a very interesting point in, in knowing how you had to actually know a little bit of German just to get by there. Right. And, and the interesting thing, actually, what you're just saying about over the counter meds, too, is they're different in different countries. So I actually mm-hmm. I found another CF patient uh, who lives in Tel Aviv on Facebook and I was basically I sent him my list of like this is everything I get over the counter in the US can I get it over the counter and it turns out things like Flonase and Nasonex are prescriptions here so I was like great I need to buy those over the counter in the US and bring them but there's other things that are prescription in the US that are over the counter here so just if every country is so different you need to check Mm -hmm. all of your medications and don't assume you can get something over the counter abroad even if you can get it over the counter in the U.S. 
That's good advice. And I think it's one of those things where, uh, again, you know, we're talking about this a little bit before, where it's on the patient to have the complete organization and understanding of the medications for different situations. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about before how, you know, communicating between doctors brings upon that responsibility. But here, it's all about, you know, the things you're going to be buying or, or using. Um, and that's, something, that's, that's an overlooked skill, I think. It's not an easy skill to master by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I think, you know, I think when I was, I think when I was a freshman in college, I was, I was learning that on the fly. You know, you're you're like, oh, wait, I ran out of albuterol. What do I do? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and And I would say it's living in Israel, Germany, it's a little bit easier than when you're on a boat in in the middle of, yes, there is access to all the medications here in Israel, whereas on a boat, not so much. Not so much. That's pretty funny. Um, so Molly, we're we're running a little bit out of time here. We're, We're towards the end and we always like to give our guests the final word of the podcast. So, um, you know, what can you tell, talk to people about, um, you know, either getting involved with uh, Seafresh or uh, talk to people about living abroad, some of the anxieties people may have around that. You know, we'll leave this open-ended. You can talk about whatever you want. Um, so just go for it. Absolutely. Yeah. So I encourage everyone to follow Seafresh on Instagram, Facebook, uh, whatever your social media of choice is. Uh, we also, um, we had an impact grant this year. And part of the impact grant was we put up a website. So we record a lot of our presentations, so now we're starting to put those online. So if you're interested, I highly encourage you to go check out our website, see what presentations we have available. Um, we have two uh, patient task force meetings coming up, and patient task force meetings are available for all women with CF 18 years and older. Uh, we have one on March 21st from, I believe, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and that's going to be on... Uh, nutrition, BMI, body image, body composition, kind of specifically with a focus on how have modulators changed that. Um, And then we also have one on April 4th. Uh, Let me just look up the time. That's two days before my birthday. (laughs) (laughs) April 4th, I believe it's from 1 to 3 p.m., but I need to double check on that date. It'll be on our website for sure. And that one's on how to talk to a women's healthcare provider. So we have two women's healthcare providers coming. They're going to present to us about the types of questions people can ask, and then we'll have an open Q&A with them. And um, then we typically break up into breakout groups, and women can brainstorm research based on the presentation, bring up other issues that they've had, um, and generally discuss the topic. Great. And then what, what is the website before we let you go? So the website is www.cfresh.org. So Cfresh is C-F-S- C F R E S C dot org. Okay, so let's say that one more time. <laughs> yeah. C F R E S H C dot org. Great. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much, Molly, for uh, for joining us today on the podcast. This was very uh, enlightening, and I hope uh, some of our listeners, listeners definitely check out Seafresh uh, because it sounds like they're doing a lot of great things and a lot of patient-forward, uh, patient-driven uh, programs as well. And, of course, if you want to live abroad, it sounds like you should just Let's go for it. it. And I can link <laughs> to my, my own personal Instagram, so if people want to reach out to me and ask about Seafresh or living abroad or any of the above, I'm always happy to chat with people. Cool. And what is it? And what And what is that? Um, I am Chef Molly Pam on Instagram. 
Great. Sounds good. Well, thank you, Molly, for joining us. Uh, for those of you who want to listen to the podcast or get involved with the podcast, you can listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, GunnarSizen.com, and YouTube. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review uh, on iTunes and Spotify. Um, five stars, please. Five stars for Molly today. Um, and you can always follow us on Instagram, which is breathe underscore in underscore pod, which is also our same email address, breathe underscore in underscore pod at Asiasin.org. Good luck spelling all of that. Um, I'm Gunnar Asiasin. I said that's Tiffany Rich at Molly. Thank you again so much. Thank you so much for having me. All right, we will see everyone next week. Bye.